I'm Christy Scarrow. In this expert interview series, I'm talking to leadership experts who help them to influence, gain commitment from their teams, and have an impact. And today I'm talking with John Rennie. He's a veteran business leader, author, speaker. Um, he served in the U.S. as a U.S. Naval officer on nuclear submarines. That's fascinating. And has also led eight manufacturing businesses for three global companies. He's got two best-selling Amazon books, um, I have the watch, Becoming a Leader Worth Following, and All in the Same Boat, Lead Your Organization Like a Nuclear Submariner. That's interesting. Welcome, John. Glad you're here today. Yeah, it's great to be here, Christy. So I, I have to start, obviously, with the submarine uh, uh, analogy. And, you know, tell me what it was like to lead on a submarine and how does that translate into business leadership? I obviously had success in both of them. Sure. Yeah. No, it's it's a really unique environment. And I think probably later in my life, I realized it. So, but, um, you know, it was right out of college. I was an officer on the USS Tennessee, a ballistic missile submarine during the end of the Cold War. And we would go out to sea with 155 sailors and officers, and we would be gone for three months, about 110 days at a time. And, and what made that really unique is that um, you... Um, we we operated without any support. So we operated in the Atlantic Ocean with, with no support. So our nearest support was hundreds of miles away. We operated hundred, hundreds of feet below the surface. And so we depended on each other for our very lives, right? So even if the most junior sailor turned the wrong valve, you know, we, we could be in trouble. If the captain made a wrong decision, we could be in trouble. So everybody was critical to the mission. So everybody was important to us carrying out our mission and getting home safely. So there was a shared vulnerability and responsibility. So we were in it together. And, you know, it's interesting when I left the Navy and came into the corporate world, I saw that there wasn't that same level of, of, of organizational commitment. Uh, you know, you had you had leaders were getting certain benefits and, and, and employees on the shop floor got something different. And um, when things went bad, you know, Hourly employees got let go, but there was plenty of salary people around. And so I saw that there wasn't a shared commitment. There wasn't a shared, it was certain people got certain privileges and certain people got other privileges. And so that that built an us and them at, uh, atmosphere in these companies. And so what I spent time doing in the plants that I ran was trying to break down those walls of the us and them and, and applying some of the some of the experiences I had in a metal tube in the Atlantic Ocean for and, and, and essentially, I, re I lived two years of my life under the ocean uh, through seven different deployments. So, yeah, I'm trying to bring that that experience to business. Wow. Yeah, I mean, certainly different high stakes kind of environment that you would get in a traditional business. But so I'd love to know some, some of the key things that you did to create that. I, I know that definitely happens where you have us and them, you know, between manufacturing and office staff and frontline and, and supervisors. So what were some of the key things that created some of that cohesive team for you that worked? Sure. One of the things I recognized right away is that we didn't have enough shared experiences in, in, in the corporate world. So the hourly people lived their life in one area of the, of the building, for example, uh, and then the office people were in another area of the building. They're, the only place that they had any shared spaces, if you will, were break rooms and some bathrooms, right? So other than that, they all worked separately and they did separate things. So they saw the world through their own individual lenses from where they operated and where they where they work. And so, you know, on a submarine, we didn't have that. It, it was very tight spaces. So we were always working together. We were close quarters. We all had these shared experiences. It didn't matter if you were 
senior officer, uh, junior officer, senior enlisted, junior enlisted. We were working together for these six-hour watches, and so we got to know each other really well. So my first, the challenge at my first manufacturing plant, I had a really big us and them uh, atmosphere, and I said, how do I break this down? How do I build those shared experiences? And it started almost like with the, there's a show here in the U.S. called Undercover Boss, where like the CEO kind of works an entry-level job and gets to know the company. Well, this, this was long before that show started, but I thought to myself, what if I worked on the shop floor? What if I spent time, you know, working with, with employees? And that's actually how it started. So one, uh, the first Friday of every month, I would spend four hours working in different areas in the factory and getting to know people and they, they get to know me and I'd kind of learn about what's going wrong, where, you know, what things need to be fixed, what procedures are wrong. And uh, then I would then I would bring the the leadership team, you know, in a room and I would say I would tell them all about the great things I learned. But I could tell that they didn't have the same enthusiasm I did because they still had the us and them kind of thing. So eventually we I took that down to all of our all of our leadership team would then go first Friday uh, of every month. We'd work four hours on the shop floor at different places. And eventually all of our salary employees joined, too. So I got to the point where we all. One Friday every month, we would all work together on the shop floor. So the hourly people got to know the salary people. They learned what they did in those offices all day long. That we learned what the hourly employees were frustrated with: the, the bad tooling, bad procedures, um, you know, equipment that was uh, needed to be maintained. And so as we did this, we began to build a common understanding of the business, the common understanding of what the challenges were, and we built this mutual respect amongst the hourly and salary people. So. It was all about building a shared common experience. That's that's what really did it for us. And that's something I took on to all the different businesses that I ended up leading. But my first plant was like, how do I figure out how to break that, you know, disconnect? Yeah, that, that's a, a brilliant strategy because you said by nature on the submarine, you have a shared experience. Everything, right. your, your four walls are all there. And I could see how, one, you have a perspective of the work and the challenges, but it builds trust because you get to know each other as individuals as well, because you're working side by side instead of just passing each other in the bathroom, right? So uh, exactly. I, I love that. That's a, that's a great way to do it. Um, one of the other things that I was interested in is you talk about this concept of earn your oxygen. What mm. does that mean? Yeah, so there was this thing, there was a very high level of positive peer pressure when you got on a submarine. Uh, because I talked talked about shared responsibility and vulnerability, you had to be able to prove to your shipmates that you had their back, that you were qualified to be able to do your job and not make a mistake and and you know put the sub at the bottom of the ocean, right? So there was a very high level of peer, positive peer pressure to get qualified to be able to earn your oxygen. So they used to call the people who show up to the boat were, that were unqualified. You were a nub. So this was a non-useful body. That's what they called us, a nub. And so you had to earn your oxygen. You had to earn your qualification. And, and that was a really great way to, and, and so the other sailors and the other officers would work hard to make sure you, you had the, the knowledge uh, to be able to do the job. So they had a qualification process where you'd, you would go to different senior people on the boat and prove your your competency in different areas. So it was a great method to get qualified and get and and be able to add value right quickly uh, on the submarine. Well, you can imagine, you know, coming to corporate life after my military days, they gave me a cubicle, a stapler, and um, and nothing else. Like I didn't even know. Like, like it took them a month before I got a computer. This was a long time ago. But um, my point is, is that. 
I had no idea what to do. Like there was no qual card. There was no method to get qualified. So I took that mentality that, that earn your oxygen. And that's how I learned my job. I spent time with the more senior engineers. I was uh, hired as a design engineer. And, uh, you know, I said, show me what you do. Take me out on the shop floor. Show me, show me what you work on. Uh, what standards are in this industry? What should I be reading? What should I be doing? How, what skills? And so um, basically I took my role as a, in the civilian world, the same way as I did in the military. How do I get qualified? How do I add value? How do I be a non-use uh, or a useful body, not a non-useful body? And, and I think a lot of people, if you want to manage your career, it's about how, how much, how, how can you stack skills right? And become very valuable to your organization. Some people want to just do their job and go home. And that's great. But when they're going to be doing layoffs, or they're going to be getting rid of people, who are they going to keep? They're going to keep the people that have the multiple skills. And so that's what I learned, you know, coming from the military to business is that you got to manage your career on your own, and you've got to get qualified, you got to earn your oxygen, you got to add value. So that meant that, you know, there isn't that positive peer pressure in companies necessarily to be qualified. I think there should be, but but I think you individually in your career can do it on your own. Yeah, and what I like about that is the idea of you, you kind of came from a place of, I don't know enough to do this job, or I always want to know more. Whereas sometimes, you know, as leaders, especially if you've been at the job for a long time, you might think, well, we've done that before, it doesn't work, or I have the experience and I know better. And I think if you go with a mindset of I can always learn more and I can always find mentors to teach yeah. me, that'll help you grow as a leader. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It should, it should be nonstop. We should always be growing. We can always be getting better. And I've been leading people for 30 years and I keep finding things like, oh, I didn't know that. You know, I'll read it in a book or I'll hear it in a podcast and I'm like, I got to write that down. I need to do that. So we, we should be always continuously getting better as leaders. Yeah, I totally agree. So the other thing I think is interesting is you you believe in letting people fail, which I think is like kind of a scary thought if you're on a submarine. <laughs> um, so tell me a bit about what that means for you. Yeah, so um, failure is an interesting topic. Nobody likes to fail. It's embarrassing. It's, uh, you know, we always want to be right all the time. We want to always want to look good all the time. And that's why failure is actually so powerful. When you fail, it's a very emotional thing. It's very visceral. And the Navy understood that. Navy put us in situations where, you, we couldn't succeed. Like so, you you be under these what they call under instruction watches. So you'd be like the junior officer of the deck, and there would be an officer of the deck above you, and so they would run all these casualty drills, like fire, flooding, and all these things. And we had to try to respond, and and they came so fast that you would make mistakes. And but you were always there was always someone there watching over you. And then you know they'd secure from the drill, and you talk about what 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 what'd you do wrong there, what could you do better, what what. So th they put us in what I call they put us in a situation where we had controlled failure, so that we would learn and so we would gain skills quicker. Now think about the difference between that scenario and then your most of your companies, right? So what we do in most of our companies is we give our most difficult tasks to our more experienced employees because we have no time for failure. It has to go right every time, 24 seven, it always has to go right. We can't make any mistakes. What ends up happening is your junior employees never get those opportunities to show what they can do and, 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 and have those failures and learn from those failures and get better at their craft. Instead, they're given the, you know, the, the basic tasks, right? And the, the more senior people just keep getting the more interesting assignments and the more difficult assignments. And so we never get those junior people. And so sometimes they get bored they get disillusioned, 
they get frustrated and they get disconnected. So I think we should always try to give uh, challenging, assi challenging assignments to young employees or, or, or new employees, but do it in a way like under the supervision of an experienced employee so they get a chance to fail and learn from those failures. So, so failure is not such a bad thing. It's, it's actually a really good thing for, to help us grow and get better. Yeah, I really believe that that failure is an important characteristic of a leader to recognize it, reward it. And the idea of controlled failure makes a lot of sense. And it also made me think of organizations that I've, I've worked with or, and been a part of that are more like, are a bit of a zero to hero kind of hero to zero kind of culture, which yeah. means that you're great at your job now, we throw you into something else, you can't figure it out, so you're out, you're not good. And because, because they're really just kind of expecting you to, to not allowing you that opportunity to fail and learn and grow. They're just like, well, if you can't do it, you're out. And it's an unfortunate because it's missing that opportunity, as you said, to get the junior people to, to feel empowered, right? To learn from right. it, to learn right. that failure is okay. Because um, as you know, it, if you're not failing, you're probably not growing and learning. You're not, you're, you're just playing it, it safe, right? So yeah. yeah, that's it. And if you're in a culture where failure is... Um, looked on poorly, right? So people who fail get fired, right? So when you're in that kind of a, a business environment, people don't take chances. So they just, everybody plays it safe. They don't grow. The company doesn't grow. Everybody plays it safe because they're afraid to get fired. They're afraid of the consequences of failure. And that's not a good place to work either. So we have to, you know, like, like I say, control failure, failure is kind of the way to go. I think, uh, I think leaders have to have their employees back, so especially when they're doing things that they've never done before, or if they're doing something very difficult that, that you know, that uh, there's no precedent for it. So you have to give, you have to have your, your employees' backs when when they're doing things that are kind of diff difficult or different than they've ever yeah. done before. Because yeah. failure can't be successful unless there's that trust foundation. If you don't, if you're, yeah. if you feel like you're going to get reprimanded or that if you fail, you know, there's going to be finger pointing and you don't trust your your backup, then I, I don't imagine right. it's, you know, you're not going to feel good about trying something new, right? Exactly. Yeah. So another thing you talk about is how, how important tough times are for career yeah. development. What, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So, you know, nobody wants a tough time. We all want everything to be easy. They, you know, we want to go in and see full bank accounts and full order sheets and, and happy customers. But really, you know, if you look at the best leaders in, in you know, if you look throughout history, Great leaders can always point to the time where they overcame something really difficult. So difficult times, tough times are, are benchmarks. They're they're high watermarks in your career, right? Uh, when you're a leader and you're going through a crisis in your business, right? Everybody's looking at you for the answers. Everyone's looking at you to steer the ship in a storm, right? And you're dealing with all these feelings of self-doubt and Oh, I don't, you know, what happens if I fail? You're, you're dealing with all these internal pressures and externally you have to be strong for the organization. And being able to overcome your fears and to get through a difficult time and come out on the other side, right? There's a level of confidence you get that kind of, kind of with, goes, goes over the rest of your career, right? So you always look back at those days like, well, I got through that. I can get through this. This is nothing that this this is just COVID. I mean, I've gotten through this. I've gotten through right. So so you when you have those uh, difficult times in your career, and you've proven yourself, you tend to um, I don't know. N nothing bothers you as much. Like I know because of my experience on a submarine, the difficult things we did. 
work life seems relatively easy compared to that. And um, in, in, in my latest book, I tell the story of my grandfather who was in World War II. He was on a destroyer escort, which is a tiny, tiny little uh, ship. And it, famously, they were involved with a battle with two, um, two German submarines in, in the Battle of the North Atlantic in a heavy, massive winter storm. And, um, you know, and, and after that experience, he was, he, you know, he survived a very, very difficult experience. The rest of his life, he was the most calm, gentle man I ever knew because he had been, nothing in his life was as difficult as what he did, you know, as a 24-year-old young man in World War II. And so those tough times give us great, great perspective for the rest of our lives. And so don't, don't be upset you're going through tough times. Uh, you're going to learn a lot. You're going to develop a lot. And you're going to have a lot more confidence. And it's going to give you a new perspective uh, throughout the rest of your life. No, I, you're right. So that definitely puts it into perspective. You're fighting in these treacherous times. Even, even your stories of being underwater for two years uh, certainly feels like a more stressful situation than what we're going through now. And, I, and I'm a firm believer in, in being grateful for what you have and, and recognizing that those are, there are lessons from those difficult opportunities we go to. Sometimes it's hard right. to see them when, when you're stuck in it. It doesn't feel as, uh, as calming as it does when you realize, okay, that was that this too shall pass, right? So Right, exactly. Uh, yep. Yeah, no, I, I love it. I think it makes a lot of sense. So I just like to hear about your, your book, actually. Right? I'm assuming it's your most recent one, which is All in the Same Boat. Is that your most recent? Oh. It is, yes, yeah. Lead your organization like a nuclear submariner. So give me the top sort of three, you know, tips that come out of that that leaders can really embrace. I'm sure there's more than three, but what are they, give me a couple of highlights from it. Yeah, so I, I tell the story about um, uh, what it's like to live in and uh, in, in, in lead on a nuclear submarine and, and some of the uni unique things about that environment. One uh, being uh, there's no escape, right? So if you have a bad colleague or a bad employee or even a bad boss, right? In 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 this in in normal life, in business life, you can sort of avoid them. You can uh, you can fire an employee that you don't like, or um, you can you can ignore a, a peer that you're having a, a difficult relationship with. Well, on a submarine, that you couldn't do that, right? So you had to you had to work with the people you have, and, and part of um, part of that, if when you have a no escape mindset, you 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 resolve issues with uh, with colleagues. If you have a you know you have a fight or you have a disagreement, you you work it out, you find ways to work it out. If you have a bad employee or you have a struggle with an employee, you find ways to work it out. You find, well, maybe they're not in the right role. Let's put them in a role that they can be more successful in versus saying, well, I, that, I, can't, I can't work with that person. They're, they're too difficult to work with. So one of its developing a no escape mindset is, is one of the ta topics in the book. Um, the, the other one uh, is... Um, the idea of um, non-negotiable goals. So on a, on a submarine, it, this might sound kind of funny, but the number of surfaces always had to equal the number of dives, right? So we had to get to the surface no matter what. It was a non-negotiable goal. And and um, so all our systems were designed such that even in the worst case scenario, we could still get to the surface. And we were designed, we were trained, and everything was tested to, to that. And so in business, the same thing. What are the non-negotiable goals that you have in your business that you must get done every day? And a lot of cases, safety. Safety tends to fall in that category. But one business I ran, for example, 
we had a we had a non-negotiable goal that every request for quote was responded to the day it came in. So if we got 100 quotes that came in that day, we would stay until everything was done. And it just was a non-negotiable goal. So when you have non-negotiable goals, you don't measure them. So like on-time delivery, right? We, we measure that. And we say, well, we're at 96% on-time delivery. Well, when you have a non-negotiable goal that says everything delivers on time, you don't measure it because it's, it's like the number of dives and surfaces are always equal. Right, you don't have to yeah, measure. It should be one hundred percent. There's no measuring and, and growing. It's a goal. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I talk about how to do that, and um, you know, the fact that you don't want to have a hundred non-negotiable goals. You should have one or two that you can you can manage. But but you can do that in your business. So that's another thing that's in, in the book. And um, yeah, I think the other thing was is sharing the idea that you know we talked about us and them, but um, sharing the fact that uh, the enemy is, should be outside the four walls of your organization. So one way mm -hmm. to build unity is to make sure that you're employees know who the enemy is. And so is it, you know, typically it's the competition, right? Or some sort of external factor that's affecting your business, right? You want to guide all the all the negative thoughts towards the enemy, not internally to, well, it's engineering's fault. It's, uh, it's production's fault. It's marketing's fault. We want to get away from that. So inside the, we have no enemies inside the four walls. Our enemies are always outside that. So in our case on the submarine, the enemies were the Soviets, but they also, uh, it was also the seawater that just wanted to get in the boat, right? So it just wanted to crush us like a tin can and send us to the bottom of the ocean. Our enemy was always around us and we were reminded of it constantly, right? So in a submarine, it's easy to know who your enemy was it, or is. In business, sometimes we forget and we think it's marketing. We think it's sales. We think it's the QA department, right? And we got to get yeah. away from that. We got to focus the energy towards external enemies. Yeah, I think that happens too often with those the, the functional silos and it's a it's a place to blame here or there. And I've seen it happen a lot in sales organizations that end up, you I mean you're serving different customers and you tend to almost compete for internal resources on behalf of your customer. At the end of the day, we're like, wait a second though, we're all in the same company. We're not fighting each other. Right. I mean, I know right. by nature sales represents the needs of your customer, but we're still we're all fighting for the same thing. And once you start to forget that, and I think some companies you know, in, encourage competition, but it gets to a point where it's not, it is really creating an us versus them uh, mindset. So I do agree with you on that for sure. Um, so I want to, uh, one thing I want to make sure I include in the description is the link to your newsletter. And if I understand if, if people sign up, they get a bonus ebook, which sounds really interesting, the new leader's guide. So 10 steps to making a lasting impact in the first 100 days. So is that a quick start guide or just tell me a little bit, John, about what they'd be getting getting with that? Yeah, it's, it, yeah, just a little ebook, but um, it really goes through 10 steps, the, what you should do in the first 100 days. And it's for new leaders, like you just got promoted. What do I do in the first 100 days? And also leaders who are getting a new role. So you're moving, like myself, I moved to eight different manufacturing plants in corporate, and then I started my own business uh, uh, six years ago. But um so it's, uh, so it's for both new and existing leaders and new roles. So what are those key things you should do in the first 100 days? And believe me, this is battle tested. So this is, this is a guy, do, I've been doing it for 30 years. And these are the things I found that really work well uh, and, and, and gives you the ability to make an impact. And, um, you know, I'll give you a little, um, uh, one little, one out of the 10, I'll just, I'll give it to you here on the, uh, is create a buzz. What can you do to create a buzz? Get the rumor mill going in your favor, right? Mm -hmm. So one, one thing I, I did in one plant, for example, uh, I, I came in first day at the plant, new plant manager. I asked who the maintenance manager was and they said who it was. And he came out and said, come out, come out, come out outside with me. 
And, uh, and we, and I said, get somebody with a can of paint. And so they, they came out and we painted over all of the assigned parking for all managers, including my own. <laughs> I had my own assigned parking spot. We're going to get it out. And that's all I did. Day one, first hour, we did that. And what it did was it created a buzz like, oh, this guy's different. So what can you, so that, that's just one of 10 that's in that little new, new leader's guide for you. So that is going to be super interesting. I'm going to get myself a copy for sure. And uh, really you're, you're, uh, you're definitely telling the truth. You say it's battle tested. Your experience is, is fascinating. I can see how it's very applicable uh, to leaders trying to navigate with their team. So I really appreciate you uh, joining me today, John. I've learned a lot and I'm happy to share it with my audience. So thank you again for being part of the conversation. Thank you for having me.